Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, the podcast that dares to think differently with your host, Matthew O'Connell, featuring interviews, long-form conversations, and think pieces exploring theory and practice within a 21st century practicing life. Visit imperfectbuddha.com for more, or keep listening to new episodes at the New Books Network. This is me, Matthew O'Connell, and sponsor of the Imperfect Buddha podcast. That's right, it's my podcast, and I'm sponsoring it. Hmm, is that even possible? Well, who cares? I'm doing it. And this is really a reminder that I coach, mentor, and teach folks the weird and wonderful ways of the practicing life. Drawing on person-centered counseling, life coaching, critical dialogue, and years of teaching and group facilitation, I coach and mentor folks looking for an alternative to the current market of self-help, spirituality, and religion. Much of what I have specialized in touches on themes that have been explored in the podcast. So for those new to this podcast and this kind of approach to coaching, let me fill you in a little bit. I use post-traditional tools and tools taken from the world of non-philosophy and non-Buddhism and my own experimentations with both. Most of the clients that come to me through this podcast are current or ex-Buddhists, ex-spiritual types, and those cautiously approaching practice with a view to keep their intelligence and critical faculties intact. If you are an intellectual hiding your desire for something along the lines of a spiritual practice, yes, the scary quotes are out there, don't be shy, come on out of the closet and be proud we'll find a way to make it work that you don't need to be ashamed of. Seriously, I mean it. I work with traditional coaching and counselling methods too, as well as meditation. And for the more adventurous folks, I can offer shamanic tools, well, they're really neo-shamanic tools and concepts, and something akin to a practice rooted in a reconfiguration of our relationship with the natural world, minus the romanticism, I offer a sliding scale, so whatever your economic status, if you're genuinely interested in upping your game, money should not be an obstacle. Wherever you find yourself in your life right now, if you wish to refine your relationship with practice and take a leap into a deeper relationship with the practicing life, do get in touch. The first session is non-committal and won't cost you a dime, a euro, a cent, or a penny. We'll decide together whether it's going to be a potentially good working relationship, and if so, you can commit to a cycle of practice sessions. I currently do most of those online through Skype or Zoom, although if you happen to be in Italy or somewhere near the border, you might even come down for a session in person. You'll find all you need in a contact form at imperfectbuddha.com or you can get in touch through imperfectbuddha at outlook.com. 
Occasionally I get excited about a guest coming on because I just know that he or she is the possessor of a playful, explorative mind and thus I can kick around ideas and intuitions, speculate and throw imaginative fancy into the exchange. Peter Salmon falls into such a category. Today's guest is an Aussie writer and now a British resident. Peter has also written a wonderful book on Jacques Derrida for Verso Books called An Event Perhaps. In doing so, uh, Pete has made much of Mr Derrida's opaque thought, transparent and approachable. The book mixes an intellectual biography of his thought and writing with an exploration of the man's life and how the two oscillate and inform one another. The book is a great feast affair and illustrates how much a regular diner Derrida was at the banquet of ideas, intellectual history and human culture. He also refused to be tied down, even to his own ideas, and certainly did not want them to be yet another iteration of ideological dominance or the next best thing. His work features what we might call elusiveness, and this can make Derrida appear bewildering, confusing, and sometimes plain bonkers. Yet this would be a superficial reading of what is a deeply human, deeply engaged man who really paved the way for rethinking the world and our relationship with what is given and appears as matter of fact. He's a thinker we really do need today. Derrida was a generous mind, gifting us ideas such as spectrality and hauntology and of course deconstruction, an often misunderstood concept. He questioned oppositions, contemplated imagined futures, questioned the distinctions we use to separate the human species from other animals, and he also suffered from a nagging fear that those who thought him a charlatan might just be right. His writings may be beyond hard work for many of you, but his ideas should not be, and Peter's book really serves the purpose of unpacking them and making them accessible. Derrida has something to say on Buddhism too, in fact, many of Derrida's core insights concerning metaphysics, selfhood, identity, and the nature of things mirror core principles within Buddhism. And this observation is in part what drove me to get Pete on. Now, Pete carries some of the fine qualities of the Aussie character. He's down-to-earth, informal, devoid of superbia, and has an open sense of humour. His writing mirrors his character, and aside from the book, you can find his writings all over the web, with more recent pieces building on Derridian thought applied to, well, events, perhaps. Now, our conversation was rich. We tackle Derrida, of course, and Buddhism, and Derrida and the culture wars, and Derrida and practice. Foucault gets a mention too, as does Heidegger as does spiritual enlightenment, mindfulness, spirituality, and there's a, well, a nice critique of the dearth of good questions amongst those operating weaponry on the left or right in the culture wars. Now, our conversation was incomplete, 
we made plans. Now this is the first part of a two-part conversation and that's great news for you, well, and for me, and I think for Peter too. Now I'm currently reading up on Zen and Derrida, Majamaka and Derrida, so expect the second rendezvous to be even more Buddhist. For now though, enjoy this rather interesting and varied conversation. We're back again with another interesting and curious interview. Peter, thank you for coming on and speaking to us today. Thank you, Matthew. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Today we'll be talking quite a bit about a man, a Frenchman called Jacques Derrida. We're going to weave into our conversation connections to Buddhism and perhaps even the idea of the practicing life. What would you think? Can Derrida, in your almost channeling of him, opine on all things, even Buddhism, or are we asking too much of the fellow? I think we can ask that of him. He was, I think, a religious thinker in many ways. Um, but just to put that to one side, one of Derrida's key notions is that everything is deconstructible. And we'll, we'll go into more detail about what, what deconstruction is very soon. But everything can be taken apart, that nothing is completely coherent. So that applies to film. Um, it applies to architecture. It obviously applies to philosophy, applies to literature. Derrida was very good at taking his idea of deconstruction and, and going out into the world, as it were. Um, one of the sort of major difficulties I had writing the biography of him was he tended, whenever he was invited to a conference, to churn out another 400-page book about the subject <laughs> and whatever it happened to be. Mm -hmm. um, had he been invited to a, a Buddhist conference, and I, I, I'm, I'm sure that would have been the case, he felt that his his theories were applicable across disciplines. And I, you know, for me, that would apply to Buddhism. And from, from reading I've done, it does apply to Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Okay, great, good. Now, look, uh, French philosophers more broadly, and um, I know he's Algerian French, but we'll, we'll leave him in the camp of uh, being French for now, yeah. are prone to hyperbole, right? <laughs> and I do wonder whether Derrida is any different, because we know the man is difficult to grapple with. Um, his way of writing is elusive and challenging. But do you think hyperbole is a key feature of why Derrida is also someone that we struggle with? Absolutely. And I don't think that just I think that Derrida himself wrote about that. He, he described his personality as hyperbolic. Hmm. Um, there, there's some great quotes about him saying that he, he, he got an idea and like a dog with a bone just went and went and went with it. I think it is one of the incredible strengths of his writing that he won't let anything rest. He will keep going and going. Um, it is part of the, the, the French vibe of philosophers, if you like, that you know that, that they are trying to answer very crucial questions and they are deeply serious about themselves, which sometimes makes us in the Anglosphere uncomfortable around that. To many in the Anglosphere, philosophy can be a sort of game, I think, whereas these, are, these thinkers are really looking at the deepest questions, which is not to say people in the Anglosphere don't do that, but they are looking at the deepest questions and attempting to come up with answers or at least more questions. And Derrida would describe himself as hyperbolic and also a graphomaniac uh, is another way he described himself. As far as I can see, most of what Derrida did was read and write. And the amount of stuff he wrote was astonishing. And all of it is really grappling with very big questions constantly. Mm -hmm. So there's an almost uh, obsessive compulsive tendency then. Absolutely. I mean, I, I love some of the little stories about he, he, he basically wrote in the loft at home. And a lot of Derrida is written in by his own admission in his pajamas. You know, he would get out of bed, go to his desk and then write and then sort mm. of stagger down at 3 p.m. And, um, and, and hope that there was some food available. So he really thought about these things all the time. His leisure activities seem fairly minimal to my, to my eye. Mm. 
Yeah, it's interesting as well, before you mentioned um, playing a game with regards to the Anglo-American world of, of philosophy or what is uh, commonly entitled as analytic, but a lot of the critics from those two worlds would describe the French philosophers as, as sort of playing linguistic games. And mm, uh, of yes. course, Derrida has been uh, accused of that. Yeah. When people think of Derrida, they normally think of deconstruction and you described it using a term that's, that's often associated with it, which is taking things apart. Yeah. I was trying to think a little bit about what deconstruction is, and I started to realize that perhaps it's a little bit elitist. I wonder if we can come at it from a practical stance and see it more as a practice, because that might aid listeners in understanding it as being less elitist. Yeah. Would you accept that criticism? And if not, how do you think deconstruction might look to a layman engaging with it as a, as a sort of intellectual resource for thinking about the world more broadly? I mean, I don't think in itself it's elitist. Um, I do think, and it was one of the things I battled with throughout the process of writing the biography, the intellectual biography, that a lot of Derrida's defenders tend to push back against any anything else. You know, that, that, that they're seen on both sides, both in the critics of Derrida and his supporters. He was not to be treated as just another philosopher. Or his defenders, he sort of comes out from out of space and, and comes up with these radically new theories. For his, for those against him, he was just wasn't doing philosophy. The other thing about it, I think, and this Derrida tried to make the point: philosophy is a technical language, and it, it takes on technical terms. You know, Kant had his technical terms, Hegel had his technical terms, the analytic philosophers have their technical terms. Derrida had his technical terms, as it were. So if you're doing deconstruction, then you use these tools that he's providing. He also, as we'll come to, I'm sure, was very suspicious of declarative sentences. In fact, a lot of his philosophy is built around non-declarative sentences, not fixing meaning at all. And for someone coming into Derrida for the first time, including myself, it's very hard to find a point to start with. I mean, even a thinker as complex as Heidegger starts being in time by saying the question of the meaning of being has been forgotten. I'm going to explore it. And then he explains his technical terms as he goes along. Mm -hmm. Derrida doesn't do that. Derrida, having made the decision that, you know, this is the way forward, then just leaps in and starts deconstructing left, right and center. <laughs> so in those two senses, there is an elitism that hangs around it. However, ultimately, deconstruction is a fairly simple concept. It merely states that something that has been constructed, therefore is a concept, can be deconstructed. Um, I occasionally give the example of, of a chair to make it you know, really simple. You know, a chair has been constructed, therefore you can deconstruct it. Now, to deconstruct it is not to take the chair apart at, you know, physically. The chair is still there after you've done it. But what you do, you analyze the politics behind the chair. You know, who is the chair for? What does it say about style? What does it say about the style of a particular time? What does it say about the, uh, the fact that it's someone's favorite chair? What does it say about that person that's their favorite chair? And so on. So you're looking for all of these clues around the chair. Now, you do that to a piece of literature. Um, who is excluded from this piece of literature? Who is it written for? When was it written? What doesn't match up in this piece of literature? What sort of hidden assumptions are there? Uh, same as a piece of philosophy. So you're taking something and you're looking at how it's put together in order to see what that putting together means. Not to take it apart so it doesn't work anymore, but to say it can never wholly work because no thing can wholly work. So what does it mean, the bits that don't work? Yeah, it sounds almost like a form of archaeology in the way you're describing it. 
yeah, I think it is. I mean, obviously, Foucault is the thinker who's most closely associated with, with the archaeology, with looking at those hidden historical layers. But yes, I, I, I do think that, you know, that, that's a fair assumption of it, that it is looking, it is not taking anything as read. Everything has hidden assumptions and deconstruction goes in and tries to tease those apart to find interesting things, not to destroy the thing itself. So it could be seen as a, a form of anti-superficial practice which could be carried out in degrees. Absolutely, yes. And, and But a lot of what we just accept as common sense, for instance, is in a way superficial. You know, one of the one of the things that you know anyone who lays a bit in bed at night being anxious about things does is go, oh hang on, these things that I, I think are very simple, actually when I if I explore them deeply, they start to become incredibly complex and, and a lot of our society is built on not letting us explore those things and just accept what's going on. Um, so so that kind of superficiality was an anathema to Derrida. He thought everything should be thought of very, very powerfully. Yeah, of course, that takes a lot of time and a lot of mental energy. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and yes. in that, that sense, it may be uh, or may remain elitist to some degree because who has the time to do it all, right? He spent so much time doing it himself and in a sense he scratched the surface of what was possible. In a sense, what you're just saying makes me think about you know, classical music, for instance. You know, mm. Who has the time to sit down and listen to a 45-minute symphony now just for their own um, pleasure or their own information or, or any of those things? And yet no one who does and who really goes deeply into it will come out without being transformed in some sense. Mm-hmm. So obviously we can all live superficially, and, and many of us do. Um, whether that's good for the overall culture, we'll put to one side for the moment. But if you want to read Derrida, I think it's a, a wonderful thing to do. And it can open up ways of seeing the world, as, as, you know, as, as any of the great philosophers can, of course. So his work continues to be highly relevant to today. And deconstruction is, of course, the, the key word to get into what he's done. Do you think there are other areas of his work that are really continue to have a high level of validity today and require careful attention, perhaps from, from more folks? Absolutely. Um, one is democracy, which I, I think we'll come back to mm. a bit later. Um, but the one that I, I guess is sort of front and centre at the moment is identity. Um, and Derrida has, you know, when, when I was writing the book, you know, three or four years ago, it came out a couple of years ago. Um, he'd sort of plateaued slightly in, in a lot of the, the sort of cultural discourse um, and has come roaring back um, for anyone who's following, and I'll put these in very Derridian quotation marks, the culture wars. Um, Derrida is seen as one of the, the enemies of all that is good uh, in those who would sort of defend the status quo. Um, the the as someone who obviously writes about Derrida and follows him, you know, I do do Google him quite often or tweet him quite often, and the hostility towards him is, is quite immense. Um, he is seen as disrupting identity, um, and in the culture wars, he and Foucault are often invoked as those who are undermining all of society. You know, literally saying he's undermining all of society, and I think that's very interesting. And 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 if you want to, I could perhaps talk about his childhood now because i think that is that is very opposite or we can come back to it later with whichever suits um but certainly in the culture culture and identity wars he is he's very front and center yeah although perhaps less so than foucault who obviously speaks to power and power dynamics and that seems to be a a sort of central tenet of let's say the more vigorous forms of activism and the culture war on the left and yeah. I think the right tends to be more au fait with, with him as a symbol of what's wrong. Yeah. 
In fact, I was thinking about Derrida when I first thought about approaching you to to have a conversation. And I was actually surprised because I don't go around like like you do Google <laughs> searches of, of Derrida every day. But I was like, actually, Derrida seems to be escaping some of the excesses of the, the culture war in the States. But you, you seem to be implying that's not the case. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm very surprised. And I did write about this at one stage that there's almost this um, portmanteau word, um, Derrida Foucault or Foucault Derrida. Wow. Uh, I, I agree that Foucault cops more of it. I think, um, you know, he's, he has three or four more things about his identity that those who are who want to retain the status quo or are uncomfortable with. Also, I think Foucault is more readable and therefore there are more people who actually engage intellectually who can have a go at Foucault as well, whereas right. yeah. Derrida tends to invoke in ways that are completely irrelevant to anything Derrida ever wrote, as he was during his lifetime. Yeah. Um, but they, they do often get shackled together. I agree that you know if I was a Foucauldian, I'd be you know getting more slings and arrows than as a Derridian. But both are you know particularly seen as undermining the academy and 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 the way things have been for a very long time. Yeah, that said, we we do seem to be caught in a, in a in an age of bewilderment. We're surrounded by an excess of information and data, and low levels of meaningful critical engagement and understanding. And I think that's true at many levels of society. We're, we're all kind of caught up in a whirlwind of distractions. And I wonder to to what degree even some of those who draw on the work of Foucault or Derrida are actually thinking seriously about the wider implications of some of their ideas. It seems we too many of us adopt their ideas because they become tools within the battle rather than a way of understanding perhaps the battle more effectively. And I think we're, we're in a bit of a quagmire as, as far as the, the culture wars are concerned. I don't, I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, you can read any thinker, you know, shallowly or, or deeply. And, you know, I think because for many who are Derridians, and I don't actually count myself as one, and, and we may come back to that as well. Um, he has he, he was attacked a lot during his own lifetime. Um, he attacked a lot subsequently, and so many of these attacks have been not actually based on his writing. I mean, I think he's a very easy philosopher to not read. Um, so, so they are then put in a defensive position and and sort of exaggerate his contribution to some extent. Whereas I think he he is a very interesting thinker on some of these issues that he's being invoked to, to defend. You know, he he was very interested in in the questions of truth, on, on how truth is constructed, who constructs truth. Um, he wasn't so much like Foucault saying that truth is always power, but he was looking at the way, the different ways in which words like truth are used. Um, he was looking at different ways in which we identify ourselves and identify others. He was also, as I touched on before, very interested in the idea of democracy and democracy to come in his terms. You know, we, democracy is never perfected. It's always this, this future thing. Um, he aligns that with kind of religious thinking that the apocalypse is always to come. It's not actually happening. So as an actual tool for analyzing these things, I think he is very, very interesting. And unfortunately, sometimes he's just used as a symbol by both sides to mm. show everything that's right or everything that's wrong. Yeah, which is a shame, um, really a shame. But I think, like I said, part of it is a wider cultural condition that we're stuck in. And I wonder if it's going to plateau at some point and sort of reformulate itself in into a different or new variety of social practices. But it's how do we deal with excess? Our, our monkey brains are certainly not designed to deal with it. 
Um, But anyway, that's going off in one direction. I want to bring us in another direction. Uh, I'm going to return back in a sense to the first question I began with. So look, Foucault, obviously, in bringing this question of power, could talk about anything too, right? And in a sense, he does. Do you think Derrida could say something or would say something, not just about religion, but about spirituality? As you're probably aware, a lot more people today identify as spiritual but not religious. Yes. In doing so, this token, this word spirituality, ends up becoming a sort of container for more and more forms of human desire. Yes. And, and thought and almost unthought or superficial thought. What do you think Derrida might say about that? And do you think he might even have something to say about not, not necessarily an apocalypse or its opposite, this kind of return to God, but something that's present within different forms of Buddhism, Western and uh, otherwise, spiritual enlightenment? Any thoughts on those two? Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that most impressed me reading Derrida was he treated religion, is the broadest term to start with, very, very seriously. First of all, he treated all literature as a serious thing to engage with. Um, He certainly didn't have any of the kind of ultra-atheistic positions that have often been part of 20th century Western philosophy. He felt that there were various ways to explain meaning. He thought that philosophy was one way of looking at meaning. He thought literature was another way of looking at meaning. But he very much thought that religion was a way of looking at meaning. Um, what, one of the kind of revelations to me going back to, to books, I was going to say books like the Bible, which is, you know, to the Bible, for instance, is that it is a series of short stories, of poems, of theatrical pieces of, you know, it's, 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 it's a bit of a mess. You know, the, the sayings of Jesus are, you know, obviously oblique and strange and going back and reading those and the strangeness of them. And I think that was something that Derrida was very attuned to. And he didn't think that religion, and this is across the religions, he didn't think they were strange because they they were they were outside of life. He thought life was strange. And I think when we any of us step back from life, life is pretty strange. Trying to make this whole thing work, trying to sort of do all the chores of life, trying to also have some sort of um, feeling of self, um, relationships and so on. It is a strange game we're all playing. And I think he thought religion was very, very powerful in capturing that. Now, the religions he engaged with most were Christianity and Judaism. He was born Jewish. Um, He described himself as an atheist, and yet he was open to religious thinking. Um, He engaged a bit more with Islam um, towards the end of his life. Um, All of those things. So he, he was very attuned to that way of looking at things. Now, in terms of spirituality... I do think I agree with you totally. It's become this empty term, and I, I find myself increasingly annoyed that you know people declare themselves <laughs> you know, spiritual. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a bit spiritual, you know, which means scented candles and and this pinky plonky music quite often. You know, so. And a bit of yoga on the side, perhaps. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And of course, you know, a lot of our engagement with thought of any sort is superficial and you know, we all have busy lives and so forth but but to actually say that you are those things when you haven't explored the text when you haven't engaged with them i think a derrida will be against that because engaging with text is what he believes should be done um but also it becomes a completely empty term and for derrida empty terms are you know that that sort of common coin i think nature had great things to say about this that you know common coin it gets used so much that the face rubs off it these these words just become empty of all content Mm -hmm. um and derrida resisted that at at every turn 
where I think he would be interesting in terms of Buddhism, and I know we, Matthew, Matthew sent me an article that I'd also read two days ago and was going to pretend that I knew all this stuff. So we both looked at the same article. So <laughs> I'm going to be very deridian and expose our workings there. That's a great um, confession. Well done. Very Christian. <laughs> <laughs> well, Derrida really used to often when he was interviewed say, before I answer that question, I'm going to point out that there's a camera here and there's a sound guy and I've been given the question beforehand. So let's just say how artificial things are. But I mean, we were both looking at it, engaging with it, weren't we? And and that idea that the self is constructed and and contingent and is built in many ways through language, I think is something that, you know, it is, you know, very Derrida um, and very you know, Buddhist thinking. I think where Derrida would resist, and I'm obviously apologizing for speaking for Derrida because he, he may have disagreed with this completely, was that idea of enlightenment. Um, one of Derrida's key ideas uh, to do with religion, and I, I described earlier the apocalypse to come, was we can never actually get, certainly in this life, to that end point. Um, we 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 theorize, theorize, for instance, that there's a God. Um, religion is built on theorizing that there's a God. God is, is this kind of anchor point. But if God arrives, then religion ends because you know, the question is sorted. Um, if enlightenment arrives, then things are sorted. Derrida wanted to point out that you can have faith that that happens. You can also have faith that that's not going to happen. But in the here and now, we're living in a world that's messy and incoherent and we produce meaning in order to cling on to things, but we can't get to that end point. Derrida was always very suspicious of beginnings and endings, um, of points of origin and points of, of fin finality. He talked about life as a task. We're in the task of life. You know, being is a doing word, as it was for someone like Heidegger, um, that, that in doing things we create meaning. To actually say that there's going to be this final revelation, um, you can say it, but we don't know. And I think that that that's a very interesting part of Derrida's religious thinking, all of his thinking, in fact. Um, and so it's Derrida always regarded final decisions or final moments as a sort of violence, um, a sort of imposition, um, and was very resistant to them in, in his day-to-day -day life. So that's what I think he would think about Eastern religion. I, I don't. I haven't found very much that he's written about it, and I, I may be wrong. And and obviously, if, if if people out there have written a lot about it, I'd love to know. You know, get get in touch. But but that's where I think he would be with with those sort of questions. Good. Yeah, there's a lot in there, and it, they triggered various associations, and some of those are actually already written into the questions that follow. Yeah, I would suggest that within Buddhism, at least in the West, and I, I can't speak about other areas. You're picking up on a tension which is fundamental to ideas across Buddhism and that leak out within into the world of, of spirituality and that say it's more serious of proponents or practitioners. Is there an end? Is there a final goal or not? Or are we forever within a kind of a state of imperfection? And I certainly side with the latter, and that's partly within the name of the podcast too. Yep. I think one reason for that is it brings us towards an appreciation of imminence Absolutely. Not necessarily as an opposition to transcendence, but as a kind of grounding force to the ideals of, of, of transcendental, let's say, completion or ending or totalities. And that's something I deeply appreciate about Derrida's thought. And I wonder if it's one of the, the key factors that allows him, in a sense, and excuse me if this sounds a bit trite, but to kind of remain human and to not turn into a hero, right? Yet another hero of philosophy. He stays human. His own flaws are within his work, at least from what I understand about him. He was honest about that. And I think that 
added strength to his position. But I think it must have also frustrated some of his opponents when he was alive, because if you're self-deprecating you know, deprecating and you're kind of honest about what you can't do, then that robs some of the fuel of your opponents. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a few things in there to, to come at. The first is about imminence and transcendence. Um, Derrida's breakthrough in his own thinking, as, as he described it, uh, well, there's a couple. There's one about writing and speech, which which perhaps we'll touch on. But but it was about transcendence. He um, his his initial works were criticizing structuralism. Um, structuralism being that you know everything is defined by the things around it. You know, words are defined by the words around them, and so forth. Um, and he noticed that you always needed this kind of transcendental anchor to, to hold the thing together. Um, we were talking before about religion and God. So God is outside of the system and holds the whole thing together. If God goes into the system, the system falls apart. So he, he is a philosopher of imminence. He is not, he, he rejects the transcendental, basically, the transcendent, sorry. Um, he, the transcendental signified was the thing that he resisted constantly. Um, again, he wouldn't oppose imminence and transcendence absolutely because he, he was very alive to dichotomies and trying to sort of overthrow them or, or make them more complicated. But that's always his position that, that's, you know, that we are, we live in a world of imminence and when a philosopher, for instance, tries to nail down a concept in a nice, you know, 800 word piece or in a very long volume, they're getting it wrong somehow. Something's missing. You, you can't do that. It doesn't work um, because they are, you know, trying. The history of philosophy is trying to defer, define terms that don't move, and that can't be done. Um, in terms of his humanness, that to me was obviously as a biographer, you become very close to your subject, um, and so I think that goes with the territory. But I do think with with Derrida, there is a need to treat him as human, and perhaps one of the breakthroughs in my thinking about trying to get the book right because I was drowning for a very long time because it hmm. is very hard to read. Um, the number of light nights I lay awake going, Trace, I don't know what Trace is. I'm supposed to be writing about Trace. What is Trace? Um, was to go, okay, and, and I'm actually going to invoke um, uh, <laughs> a friend of mine in Australia, um, Gary Mansfield, who uh, would come up to you if you're reading a book, you know, Heidegger or you know, Nietzsche or whatever, and say, oh, you know, Heidegger, what does he reckon? And I kept that in the front of my mind. <laughs> Derrida, what does he reckon? Um, you know, that he is a human being trying to think through problems mm -hmm. and resisting the idea that you are superhuman in some sense, that you can answer these questions. Um, he loved philosophy. This is one of the, he's often attacked for, you know, destroying philosophy. He's not, he absolutely loved philosophy. He loved the fact that people were thinking about these questions and these questions worried him and concerned him. Um, and part of the passion of his writing and part of the, you know, the, the hugeness of his writing is in volume is because he, he really cared about these things, but he was a human and he said, to philosophers, to thinkers, to everyone, you're not going to get it right. You're not, there is no finish to this. This keeps going. Mm. Um, and that's incredibly challenging if your job <laughs> is <laughs> to come up with the answer, you know. Mm. And, and so I think that's that's a huge part of it. And, and I do love the fact that this is called the imperfect Buddha because that idea of perfection, mm. everything finishes at that point. You know, uh, once perfection is reached, you know, if, if, if you can, if, you know, you can get everything whole and, and making sense, then that's the end of it. Now, there may be a, a wonderful, blissful, you know, existence after the end of it. We don't know, but we, we, we're not there. We're here. Yeah. I think the other reason you probably struggled with the book is that there's so much to think about. 
Mm. Right, he's a very generous thinker, Derrida, and he provides us with a, a, so much material that you can just head off with and spend years, if not uh, decades, uh, swimming in. The, yeah. There's a great quote, actually, that links back to what you've just said, which I'm going to read to you because I wrote it down. I wrote down a few of my favorite quotes. He says, I want to reread the entire Corpus Platonicum and to settle into it as if into a very refined brothel. <laughs> with confessionals and peepholes everywhere, mysteries without the slightest vulgarities. You know, it comes across as like a little boy in a playpen, right, with construction yeah, yeah. toys, which is another bit from the book. There's a great metaphor that we use that we took from a friend of the podcast called Glenn Wallace, who's an ex-academic and a, and a great thinker both within Buddhism and philosophy. But he uh, he put together an idea which the Great Feast, and the idea of the Great Feast is a a kind of intellectual location, an ideal location where all kinds of thought come together and engage at a sort of democratic get-together in which all thought is allowed to interact with all other thought. Mm. And I think that kind of resonates with this idea of the brothel, although it's, I guess it's less taboo. Yes. But um, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think the other thing as well is when you take this kind of earthbound way of approaching knowledge, philosophy or religion... Um, you obviously challenge not just the transcendental, but ideas that relate to it, such as eternalism. Yeah. And you come back to not just imminence, but finitude. Yeah. And I think it sort of forces on a practitioner, whether philosophical or religious, a new form of discipline, one in which um, we must be content, in a sense, to be confined by the limits of a human life, by other humans who have come before us and who are alive now, and therefore establish different kinds of both intellectual but also practical relationships with, with thought and the process of constructing and bringing ideas into relationship. Again, from my view, Derrida was, was brilliant at that, and he resonates with a thinker I'm going to ask you about later on, which is a guy called Francois Laruelle. But just before I, I get on to a second quote, have you heard of Francois Laruelle? I have, and I grapple with him a lot. So I'm, I'm very glad you're going to ask me questions that I can't answer because... That's okay. <laughs> I'm really interested to talk about him because of all of that gang, if we, if we can call it that way, yeah. he's the one who... Um, and I, I know Derrida had this sort of relationship with him too, where sometimes I just stare at him and go, I don't know what you mean. I really <laughs> don't know what you mean. <laughs> okay, great. But, but I'd be interested to talk about him. Well, we'll see how much we manage today because there is so much we could talk about. But uh, one thing that's certainly clear uh, in my mind uh, in looking at Francois Leroy is that he is indebted to Derrida and he mm -hmm. runs with a lot of what Derrida has given us. Yes. Um, but yeah, look, here's a quote. Here's another quote. And I think it brings us back to, to Buddhism so we can stay a little bit disciplined and focus in our conversation. Because yeah. this quote could come from a Buddhist book and it's the following. A philosophy of immanence, there is no centre as being, but rather as function, displacing essence and autonomous existence. So look, that resonates really, really well with the idea of no self or non-self in Buddhism. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think, again, this sort of comes back to identity, um, that for Derrida, identity was never fixed. Um, which is exactly the same as what we've been saying about the other kind of, kind of transcendences, as it were, that our, our identity is a construction. And you can try and tear apart that construction. You can deconstruct it even. Um, but you can't actually get back to an essential us that's underneath all of it. 
Um, for, for Derrida, and just briefly to touch on this, he was born in Algeria, so he's Algerian. He was Jewish um, when, you know, people around him weren't. Um, he was a French speaker. He was part of the Pete Noir. Um, so he had, he had all of these complicated things to do with his identity, um, and he took that and ran with it. Um, but all of us do. You know, all of us come into this world with, with a whole series of histories. We're thrown into a particular time. We have particular parents. Um, we, we, we may be adopted. We may not be adopted. We may. All of these things. Um, and a lot of our socialising, as it were, is to cover over those things, to say it's absolutely natural that you, X, are born of this time to these people in this place. Um, that's, that's how things are. Um, so, the, so Derrida was not different in that. However, his was more sort of, you know, battered about politically and, and, and socially. So he was more aware of it. Of course, lots of other people at the time would have been aware, but they weren't Derrida. Um, but he really saw the self as contingent. Um, I, I think of a couple of ex examples. One, him being kicked out of school when he was 13. That was 1943 for being Jewish. Um, his family was fairly secular Jewish. Um, suddenly he's labelled with being Jewish. Um, completely arbitrary that he's now Jewish and everything about his life is defined by his Jewishness. A year later, he's allowed back because the rule, the laws change. Suddenly he's, it's not important that he's Jewish again. Very complicated stuff. I yeah. also think about when he, he always said that was the most traumatic experience of his childhood. The most traumatic experience of his adulthood was he was thrown into jail in Prague on a trumped up, charge of um, carrying drugs. You know, the, the, the Czech authorities admitted afterwards it was trumped up. They were just testing the waters. Spent a night in a jail cell, stripped of his identity completely. You know, you put in the same outfit as anything else. He's there with robbers and, and, and murderers, and, and he's, he's only there for like 12 hours. But at that point, he's not Jacques Derrida, the famous philosopher. He is just a guy who's been charged. Mm. And this kind of arbitrary, contingent nature of the self is something that he wrote about a lot. But it's something we all experience, isn't it? We we all have these identities that we try, and we might be a we might be a father or a mother, or we might be a good employee, or we might be we might be queer, we might be straight. These these labels and they shift over time, and yet we have to keep trying to hold this identity, and hold on to the thought that something about us is the same throughout all of this. And I think in Buddhism, as I understand it, and certainly in Derrida, that same self. We can't find it. It's it's the, the, you can't actually say who that is. Uh, we can have a face in that. We can we can mistake that for soul or, or for any of those things, um, but we can't actually grip onto that. And once you're saying that there's no self that's that's actual and real, then you start to look at ideas of non-self, don't you? You start to look at this this idea that that you know deep down there. We're not going to find anything. We're going to keep going deeper and deeper and deeper, which is not a negative. It, it is part of the exploration of being alive. Mm. Well, it's negative if you exist in a world in which there is supposed to be something there and you're inculcated into a worldview in which there should be, right? Yeah. Something solid or reliable to be found. And that's probably the problem, yeah. right? Yeah. It's a traumatic thing for many, many people. I mean, yeah, yeah. without wanting to go into sort of depth psychology and all that sort of stuff, a lot of the traumas, anxieties and so forth of our lives is that bits of our wants, needs, desires, A, they change, but B, they don't match up with who we're supposed to be, you know, and <laughs> Derrida was very interested in, in the secret. He thought secrets were really interesting to look at. All of us have secrets 
to some extent they can be banal secrets that you you know you like a pop song that you're not supposed to like or they can be deeper secrets <laughs> because you can't get this self-coherent it, it it jumbles all over the place you start a new relationship you become a new person you you end a relationship you become a different person you change a job those those sort of sort of you know very quotidian examples but also your desires wants needs change over time affected by the world around you and i think a lot of what we're supposed to do and we won't re-invoke the culture wars but i think this that's, that's a lot of what's happening we try and fix what a human being is and you know you can't you just can't hmm. there is something i would critique in that i think if we understand ideas of fluidity and contingency and change as open-ended then i think they're problematic and it almost leads to a form of uh well what's the term i want to use it leads to people playing the same metaphysical games anyway because fluidity if that's the absolute or forever principle then in a sense we, we've kind of introduced a, a form of transcendence in the back door i think one question that comes up for people that discover that there is no true self or there is no reliable stable inner me somewhere that is contained anyway it's contained both by the physical body and it's contained by the physical reality of social geographical spaces and it's contained by the fact that we're members of a species and i wonder to some degree whether um derrida's later work where he starts looking at the sort of animal self mm, and yeah. starts questioning other aspects which they may be indebted to deconstruction they seem to be a kind of afterthought or what comes after mm. you know the question of deconstruction what else is there i cannot but feel that's one of the weaknesses and this is actually playing out in the culture wars is, is the old classic of is it nature or nurture yes and i think you know your friend in australia might say well i reckon it's a bit of both <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right and but we don't seem to sort of pick that up and run with it we still sort of slip back into yeah well, you know, I need to defend a position collectively, which is the same game you you were talking about before. So we end up with, what, in my view, are often unnecessary battles. They're more of a distraction from thinking about far more important questions. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's true of Nietzsche still. I think we're still struggling with, you know, what to do after God or ultimate transcendence. And I think we're probably doing that with someone like Derrida as well. Well, well what do we do next, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think nature nurture is is you know a classic sort of Derridian conundrum. I mean, it's right. a classic conundrum in, in all of philosophy. Um, that you know, I think the first thing Derrida would say is that you know, given that every time we we come to this question, we end up saying something like it's a bit of both. Um, that's pretty revealing. Maybe it is just a bit of both. Maybe we can just accept that. To to say that there's no kind of fixed identity, obviously that doesn't allow for infinite possibilities of who we are. Uh, we are you know, biologically X and, you know, we have, you know, in most cases, you know, the same amount of limbs or whatever, and we are geographically located. So we don't have the whole field to play with necessarily. Um, some would push back against that, but I, I think that's probably fair to say. You know, we can't fly, for instance. So you know, we, we don't have that access to a transcendental view view of the world. Um, so, so for Derrida, I think he would be saying that what we have to, a live with is that nature nurture isn't going to be solved but we can look at why people will tend one way or the other we can see what that says about that debate um at particular times you know why it can't fall on that side of it um he, he derrida was very interested in the end of his life about the death penalty and why have most philosophers in history been supportive of the death penalty what does that mean mm. um about their political <laughs> views so 
I think he, he wanted to keep those questions open and, you know, he hated answering questions to an extent. Um, he wanted to keep those questions open, but he also, I feel, wanted to celebrate that openness. And I think that's not to absolutely endorse it and make it a transcendental thing. It is just to say that why don't we explore the pleasures and the interests of this? Why don't we look at, see this as an exciting moment, you know, in the nature nurture department or the debates about identity. Keep the question in suspension, as it were, but explore what those questions open up to us. Yeah, I think that's interesting. But I also think that there is a question that matures out of Derrida's work, which could be something along the lines of where is containment or what are the implications of containment to the idea of openness? And again, I think that is playing out within within the struggles we're facing. Yeah. And it's possibly why some people are resorting or returning or retreating into some kind of uh, form of conservatism, yeah. which I also find interesting, not necessarily uh, politically, but I find it interesting as a kind of commitment or a question of what do we commit to, yeah, right? Absolutely. Because we must commit to something. Yeah. So where are our choices made? And I, I think somebody who's, who's also controversial and who's alive, who is probably playing around with, with this kind of challenge is someone like Peter Schlotterdijk, mm, yeah. the German philosopher. I mean, he's done two things, right? One, he's looked at, at the concept of spheres, which are in themselves areas of containment, but they're fluid or they, they leak. Yeah. one into the other so they're not they're not fixed or firm entities and the other one of course is he's he's brought back and looked at a range of different kinds of thought including buddhism um but also the stoics in thinking about well what do we do as human beings in the revelations that have come about since nietzsche mm. right and one of them is well we have to have a practice you know so what kind of practices should we have and can we exist without a practice Again, all, all very interesting stuff. Absolutely. And, I'm, I'm actually reading his book about um, religious thought as poetry at the moment. Um, oh, right. Um, okay. I, I do think he's a very interesting thinker. And I, I, I think Derrida, the, these ideas of, of boundaries and limits, I, I, Derrida was very interested in them as well. You know, um, what is the horizon? That would probably be the term. He, he mm. More. So why is it there? Why, why can I go this far and no further? Um, why does the culture go this far and no further? Why does that particular thinker go this far and no further? And um, absolutely, I mean, I think it, that kind of retreat into conservatism, um, again, leaving the political aside, um, I think is, in a, in a sense, a reaction to what is pretty heady times. I mean, I think almost leaving philosophy aside for the moment, um, we are living in times where identity is more fluid than it's ever been. A uh, global world where, you know, pe people are interacting, um, new human beings are being born, as it were, um, certainly ones that hadn't necessarily been part of Western discourse. Um, they, ha they now have voices, which previously often these people didn't have voices. So there's this, the marketplace of ideas is now this incredibly contested space and allowing a little bit of sympathy for those who find it overwhelming. Some people are just going, can we stop now? You know, can, can, can this just stop? And we just, you know, just let's all be normal again, <laughs> as it were. <laughs> but of course the, the question there is, is what is normal and normal is, is, is going to change. And I, I do think it is, apart from the, the great dangers involved, it is a fascinating time to be alive because I don't now know what human being is going to be like in 50 years' time. Now, I know you can always say that, but I think naively there seemed 
even 10, 15, 20 years ago to be this gradual sort of, you know, democracy emerging, liberalism emerging and so forth, and whether you were comfortable with it or uncomfortable with it. This, uh, I'm talking about the Western world, of course, uh, and, and probably a very specific part of it. Um, that seemed to be what was going on. Now things have exploded in all sorts of directions. Um, and as much as uh, I, I hate what a lot of what happens in the culture wars, if you can step back from it, just seeing this this thing happening is is fascinating. Where, where will the boundaries end up? Will, will they never be, end, up, end up anywhere? Have, have we transitioned to a, a world of so much data, so much change and so on that we don't go back? Or is this just another convulsion of, of, of human life that, that happens on in your regular periods and then settles down? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, uh, sure. All of that is in there it's all in the mix it's all within the the, the play but I, again i would always want to to look forward to not back mm. you know so it's like if the past is like tentacles you know multiple almost infinite tentacles going backwards and in which we are connected and in some sense indebted to our past then to some degree they will speak for us which is of course something that derrida might say too but i think the question becomes is not Let's go back to an imagined ideal past, right, which is kind of Eden and paradise. Mm. But let's try and encompass as much of all that's taking place as possible and ask better questions of it. Mm. Um, one thing I find quite frustrating, um, I mean, I've always been politically left, mm. but one thing I started to find quite frustrating a few years back when there were the sort of emerging buds of this new culture war is I felt a lot of people on the left were not really asking the right kinds of questions. They were getting into a defensive posture or they were grasping at what I thought were, were wrong-headed metaphysics. And it was just like, okay, great, fine. But look, there's an opportunity here to actually think better yes. about your historical ancestors, right? Whether it be Marx or whether it be, you know, liberal progressive thinkers, more recent or whatever. So like, think about them more, think about them better. And part of what I think has allowed me to do that to some degree is actually listening a little bit better to intelligent people on the right who I was raised to ignore. Yes, yes. <laughs> so don't listen to them. My father was a Marxist, so right, some listeners will be bored of hearing, but he was just like, just ignore those people. They're bad. Yes. And it was like, well, look, some of them are for sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But actually, some of them are rather intelligent. But what's more interesting is that they're playing with certain ideas that I would never have thought of playing with. And of course, we're not talking about um, race essentialism or the dark, evil underbelly of the, you know, the far right. We're just talking about middle ground conservatives who see the world differently from me. And it's like, if I don't engage with people who think differently from me, I'm not going to get any new perspectives Absolutely. that would allow me to think a bit better about why there are problems within the kind of inheritance that I, I've taken on politically and socially yeah. that I thought was a given, right? I had a superficial relationship with it. So... Yeah. Just to touch on that for one more moment, one of the frustrations, and I'm sure you find this um, throughout your life, you know, we touched on it briefly with you know, Buddhism and spirituality before, but is the is the lack of quality questions being asked by mm. both sides. Um, I find it incredibly frustrating that, uh, and again, just bringing this back to Derrida for, for a moment, the way that he's caricatured and the things that are said about him don't involve actual any reading of him. So I would love to be engaging with his opponents on a ground where they've read him and, and can pick out mm. things that are wrong because, you know, there are, you know, as Derrida would have been the first to point out, there are things that he got wrong uh, or that are uncertain or, or where, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But just the, the sort of animus 
um, that happens means that those intelligent questions aren't asked. And I think, you know, I can't remember who said, you know, peace is something you have to make with an enemy, not with a friend. Um, you know, we, we do need to try and find ways to make that dialogue open again. The problem is, and I'm sure you have thought about this and, and discussed this and, and, and so on, I, I found being, as again, like you, of the left, you it's very it's it's almost seen as a, a problem of the left that, that it always goes back to questions that while, while the right the, you know particularly the far right um are getting on with getting stuff done <laughs> the left is saying well could we think about this a bit more um it was one of the criticisms of Derrida that he politically would never really act um he you know even when he wrote about marxism inspectors of marx he wrote about the spectral quality of marxism he wrote about marx haunting society he would never actually go okay i'm i'm this is my political position although he marched on various things and so forth and people did find that very frustrating about Derrida. and it, it can be a trap as well but hopefully there's enough sort of people just of the right and you know the center ground that the dialogue can continue and some sort of way forward can be found yeah, nice bit of uh, idealism on our part, right? <laughs> why not? <laughs> Utopian fantasies, why not? Chuck a few around. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. And again, these, these topics are so complex and they're so open that we could probably spend a few days talking about them and, and not get very far at yeah. all. But... <laughs> One of the joys of this is I am I remain overexcited by, you know, by Derrida. <laughs> I just think there's so much in there that uh, yeah. can be talked about, so. That's an underappreciated and undervalued aspect of intellectual engagement, right? Absolutely, yeah. It is not just serious, cerebral, conceptual play. It's, no. it's something else. It yeah. should, be, should be joyful. And that mirrors, once again, Derrida, somebody who, if we go back to the uh, brothel metaphor, is somebody who physically and emotionally and intellectually engaged with the material Absolutely. he was in love with in many ways. So, yeah. look, a couple of philosophical questions and then onwards to Buddhism. There's metaphysics and the concept of play, and there's phenomenology. So I'll start off with the concept of play, because again, it could be a, a huge minefield, this one. Um, the concept of play actually has a life within certain schools of Buddhism, right? and it's an active feature of ways of approaching the notion of being a very serious, very autonomous person mm. that exists in the world, right? That must be maintained and defended. Yeah. The concept of play was also introduced in various phases of the history of Buddhism as a way to subvert the institutional forms of thought and practice, which had in many ways solidified and turned into excessively conservative fields of practice or non-practice. Yeah, which is absolutely Derrida, yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I like the fact that so Derrida picks up this concept and he runs with it, but he also sees it as an antidote to thinking about metaphysics and the transcendental and the ideal. Oh. And you write a bit about this, and you talk about um, the fact that Derrida, in a sense, is responding to a problem amongst metaphysics, which is the the, the tendency to, to forget what it means to be alive and to forget what it means to actually get lost among grand narratives, which is part of that that problem, right? Mm. So how do you think uh, such a concept of, of play might be helpful to notions of practice and disruption, specifically to the idea of presence? Yeah, thank you. That's that's a great question. The, the first thing is a kind of pragmatic quotidian thing, which I think anyone who's tried to do any sort of writing would understand. And I know this isn't directly answering a question, but I, I do want to say it because I think it is really relevant that when you when you try and write, one of the awful 
things is the constraints where you have to make deadlines, where you have to, you know, and more and more, we, we, it's a very narrow track to, you know, whether you're working in the academy or whether you're writing for your own pleasure or whatever, you have to try and hit these targets. And anyone who's creative, which means everyone, but we'll, we'll talk about literary creation at the moment, knows that playing is a huge part of it. Sort of wallowing around in what you're thinking before the, the whole editing process, the whole narrowing happens. You need to play. You need to have ideas that make no sense. You need to reject things. You need to go down a track and then come back. And You need that, that space of play. Um, and I think that actually tracks on to how Derrida would think about life and, and he did think about life, that you need to muck about in it. You know, life is messy. As we've said, that he, he resisted the idea there was a resolution to it. And if you resist the idea that there's a resolution to it, then we're just in it and we're mucking about. And, and you can construct your, a new self. You can construct new circumstances, new interests and, and all of those things. As we said, there are limits to that, but you can do that. So, so play is a hugely important part of that. The other, you know, in a sort of very direct way to do with language um, and language and life are not separate things for Derrida. When, when you're using language, if we're accepting that meaning isn't fixed for a word, then you, then there is endless possibility, not endless. There is a vast possibility within language to, you know, Derrida invented new terms or, or, or took terms apart to be constantly exploring how language works and what it can make and what it can achieve. Um, so there's a notion of play in there. But also you, you talk about presence and you, you, you mentioned phenomenology. So presumably you're going to ask about that next, perhaps. Um, presence is, again, this kind of fixed thing um, that we that, that he talked about the metaphysics of presence, which is almost specific to philosophy, where he's saying philosophy has had this unexplored idea. It's, it's basically without really it's had this assumption that ultimately there is something anchoring things, which is what we were talking about before, and it's presence, that we are we are present in the moment. Now, that, that can be sort of that idea that we, we can stand here and analyse the, the objects about us and understand them and know them in, in various senses. Um, and so we are present in this moment. Um, and Derrida says, no, you're not, you know, that, that we can never fix anything. And once we, once you can't fix things, again, you're, you're in this realm of play. So he opposes play to presence. As with any opposition in Derrida, there's, there's intersections and the, you know, the Venn diagram was not, you know, separate. Um, but so play is a way of undermining that idea that we will, we will ever get somewhere where we can stop playing down tools. Things have worked out. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, phenomenology. Well, uh, it's made something of a comeback in the 21st century, um, and it's been employed uh, quite a bit of late by philosophers such as uh, Evan Thompson, who's a, a past guest uh, of ours, especially in looking at questions of consciousness yeah. and the relationship between philosophy and the mind sciences. And um, I know that he's also been involved in work looking at what happens with contemplative practices especially if you uh, look at them and analyze them within a phenomenology or a phenomenological framework. Mm. Now, one of my philosophy books places Derrida in the tradition of phenomenology, and I wonder how accurate that is and what the connection is there. Yeah, well, I hope it's hugely accurate because that's the ball that I run with. Um, in fact, it was a major moment for me in trying to get the work done because uh, I was really struggling with Derrida. Has anyone who starts to read Derrida will do. And unfortunately I had the, the added tension of having to write a book about him. Um, and, and I really couldn't get where he was coming from. 
Um, and then I read a single sentence of his where he said that something like I regard myself as a phenomenologist or, you know, mm. I've always written in the phenomenological tradition, um, which sent me to Husserl. Um, who I became a bit obsessed with. Most of the editing of the book was my editor taking out vast passages on Husserl and me arguing to put some of that in. <laughs> um, um, uh, because uh, I, I don't think the Anglosphere quite understands how influential Husserl and phenomenology is in, let's call it the continental tradition, the French tradition and so forth. I mean, he was the main man, as it were, um, for most of 20th century philosophy. Heidegger, of course, comes out of him, but also existentialism comes out of him. Um, deconstruction, structuralism. You know, he, he is, uh, I often find myself reading books um, where they sort of say, you know, the great philosophers, Plato, Descartes, and Husserl, they're the big three, as it were. Um, now, for those who aren't so familiar, um, just briefly, I mean, Husserl, essentially said we, we, we can't keep talking about whether the world exists, you know, that that's a bit of a dead end, an interesting dead end, but a dead end. How does it actually affect us? You know, phenomenology is how we experience the world, basically. Bracket the idea of whether the world exists, how do we experience it? And that, that shifts the whole the whole game, basically. Um, so, you know, does the table exist? Doesn't matter whether it exists, but how do I experience it? So I look at the sides of it, I, I, my relationship to it, how I feel about it emotionally, all of these things. It's, it's taken off into, you know, psychology, psychoanalysis. Blah, blah, blah. Um, and Derrida comes from that tradition. Um, uh, Derrida, Derrida's kind of revelation about what he was trying to do was a, a moment in Husserl where Husserl you know, talks about this kind of still point where you're experiencing everything, so you're taking it all in, you're describing it. And Derrida basically said, you can't have that still point. Um, <laughs> you know, um, Husserl himself actually kind of says it. He, he says that we have the, 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 the now, the present, is a combination of retention, retaining our memories, protension, Husserl's word, what's happening in the future, and the now. And the, the simplest example you can give of that is a, a, a piece of music, take three notes, the middle note is affected by what came before and what comes after. You know, a, a C is not the same in a piece of death metal or a Beethoven symphony or Platonic <laughs> or whatever. You know, it's exactly the same note, but it's affected by everything around it um, and infected by everything around it. And Derrida said, Husserl, you can't do this. You can't step out of life. Husserl was aware of this. Husserl grappled with this a lot. But Derrida said, you can't step out of life. And then he transferred that to think about the history of philosophy and said, hang on, all philosophers are doing this, aren't they? They're stepping out of what's going on and giving an opinion. And he called that the metaphysics of presence. And in a, a lot of ways, deconstruction is a, a resistance to the metaphysics of presence to, again, I keep banging on about it because it is the, the Derridian point that there is no fixed point from which to to look at things. We can, we can have contingent fixed points. You know, if we want to work out you know, a mathematical sum or something like that, we can stand here and go, right, this is the tools I'm using. This is what, what it refers to. But there's no sort of overall place that we can have. Everything is infected. Everything shifts. Um, and so phenomenology for him was absolutely instrumental in, in his thinking. And I think once you start to read him as a phenomenologist, as someone trying to describe what it's like to be alive, which is what we were talking about before, then he starts to make a lot more sense. Um, mm -hmm. There's a quote of his that I often use, you know, if things were simple, word would have gotten around. Um, and that's his position, that it's not simple, that you know, any time we close things down, we're, we're performing an act of violence. Um, so, and the metaphysics of presence, fixing meaning somehow, is an act of violence. The same as fixing an identity is an act of violence. Mm. Yeah, that's great. And here's another quote from your, your book. 
uh, which relates to this, which is we mistake immediacy for presence and immediacy is a myth of consciousness. Philosophy has been chasing this myth for two millennia. Yep. There are a lot of connections as well between what you've just said and some of the fundamental issues that come up within the uh, both the Buddhist and non-Buddhist worlds mm. of meditation and mindfulness, where there's often this implicit fallacy of believing that through observing experience and sensations, you can both A, detach yourself from them and become a truly neutral observer, and B, that you can somehow inhabit an infinite of the present moment. And, uh, you know, I agree with Derrida. Um, they're wrong. But I also <laughs> think, again, yeah. perhaps they're not getting to the bit that's interesting is what do you then do when you recognize that that's a fallacy? Mm, yes. What do you do about the desire or the fetish for a present moment awareness, mm. you know, which you've inherited from somewhere and that has a history which you could probably unpack? Mm. Yeah. And then what do you do with the consequences of attempting to live within the recognition that it can't exist. Yeah. Well, <laughs> There's no true outside position. Perhaps I could ask you a question, you know, as, as a Buddhist, what do you do? Well, I'm not a very good Buddhist or a very typical one. <laughs> yeah, I'm a very imperfect one, but I would suggest that you start asking better questions, both of yourself, what you're invested in and what kind of identity is invested in that idea, um, or to take a concept from Buddhism, which is refuge. Um, the idea within a lot of schools of Buddhism is that you become a Buddhist by taking refuge. Right. And the idea of refuge is fundamental. You do it at the beginning of almost every practice. Well, I started to turn that on its head a while back and say, well, look, what are Buddhists actually taking refuge in in the West when they make these claims that are wrong? And then what can I do as a practitioner, not just a thinker or, or a practitioner of thought, but someone who's, who's engaging phenomenologically with something like a, a range of meditation practices? What takes place experientially when you start to accept these ideas, right? Or the dismantling of other ideas, which someone like my, myself... I, I did hold them very, very dear. Yes. And it does lead to disruption, and it does lead to some kind of crisis and almost psychological uh, trauma if you've heavily invested in them. But it also presents, I think, different ways of being in the world and different um, ways of relating to the phenomena, both of the personal and the social. Yeah. And this is something we've been doing on the podcast for several years now, which is looking at, well, if you start to go beyond just the individual as a practitioner, but the individual is being embedded in multiple networks of meaning making, historical, present, and then desiring of the future, what changes, right? What changes if you start to question some of the core assumptions that you may have as a Buddhist or a spiritual person, whether superficially or deeply? And, and most of the life of the podcast actually has been dedicated to that yeah. that project. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the, the, I, I come at this naively this, this word but i'm interested first of all that the word is refuge which which sounds like hiding doesn't it which yeah perhaps, <laughs> perhaps it's not perhaps it's obviously a more complicated term than that but it's you know, yeah. what we were talking about before with with derrida for instance going out in the world and, and being joyful in it. refuge really does sound like like putting a boundary up um and perhaps you you might want to impact that or perhaps we don't have time but um i'm also when, when you were talking about that that idea of psychological trauma it does make me think of louis altazaire um mm, mm. Uh, a, a, a fascinating figure uh, agreed yeah for those who may not know he, he basically had a psychotic breakdown and, and killed his wife and there's lots of stuff that we could go on about that um but he had a, a key trauma which was he's a prisoner of war throughout throughout world war ii but for me, there's also a real 
problem for when you look at him that his self did seem to break down in, the, in some of the ways you're talking about when you said you can cause psychological trauma you know i think he he did reach a point which we almost touched on earlier where nothing could be certain where everything was was constructed completely and the self became lost the self the self went um and not in a, a sort of enlightenment way <laughs> but as in he, he he everything was ideological and um i'm i'm psychoanalyzing someone who i obviously didn't know and you're not supposed to do that but it seems a really interesting thing where you can without having these anchor points um you everything can go um and i, I don't think derrida was ever against having some anchor points you know he, he married had a couple of kids for instance um but he he always wanted to know why you were doing that and what what was at stake in, in doing that. So yeah, yeah, interesting stuff. Yeah, it is. Yeah, my way of thinking about or way of rephrasing what you've just said is, um, what are we invested in, and what do we deny being invested in? Yeah. Something along the lines of that, right? So that's another way of thinking about what do we take refuge in, and in doing so, what do we retreat from? So what do we open to? What do we close to? What kinds of implicit assumptions are operating when we do that? And uh, what kinds of self-defense are we engaged in in many ways? And that's been one of the big arenas we've been tackling and prodding at and undermining in many ways on the podcast is uh, you know, what happens when you start to deny the possibility that something like meditation or Buddhist philosophy can be turned on its head and become a new a new formulation of an old Judeo-Christian ideal, which is I will be saved, I can save myself, and there is a true me in there somewhere. Again, the bit I'm most interested in these days is what happens when we take these ideas seriously and we actually accept their consequences and the destabilization of certain ideals and certain ways of identifying yourself within those ideals becomes challenged. And a lot of spiritual practitioners and a lot of Western Buddhists have basically avoided that at all costs. Yeah. And the price they've paid in order to do that has been pretty high in my view, both individually and collectively, in that certain more radical forms of Buddhism that arrived in the West have kind of been, I don't want to say silenced, I don't think there's a conspiracy taking place, but they've been marginalized yeah. and they've been replaced with what we have now, this sort of general purpose mindfulness, which yeah. on the one hand is is a great technology and I think it does provide a kind of practice for people who may have no sense of the practical in dealing with issues of selfhood and identity. But on the other hand, it's also become a kind of very safe, sanitized form of nurturing of the self or retreating from the world. Yeah. So it's become a kind of self-defense mechanism and the more interesting historical moments of Buddhism in my view are where the radicals emerged yeah. as a break from the status quo as an opportunity of creative uh, eruption, yeah. right, of new possibilities of thought, of new possibilities of practice, but also, you know, a kind of renewal of the disruption of clinging to an idea of self individually and collectively. Yeah. Yeah, and introducing new possibilities. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah. The, the mindfulness thing, I've got to say, is one of the things that irritates me more than anything in the world. Um, <laughs> almost <laughs> an, a running joke with friends at how much I loathe. Part, part of that is, obviously, let's park all the good things about you know engaging with the world around you. Um, yeah. Part of that is, I, in, in my other life, I do a lot of editing, and, and I, some of that involves editing self-help books. Oh, no. I just 
that Poor you. kills me. <laughs> it's, it's, <yeah. laughs> I feel every pound that I'm earning just like in my soul. Um, because mm. it is this, this kind of, it is, it's, it's very capitalist. It's very, you know, self, um, self-making. It's, you know, the problems of the world, uh, you just haven't quite, you know, got yourself, got your shit together, you know, all these mm. things. It's, it's often about mindfulness that, you know, we, and, and there is a, a thing where it tends into, I know you shouldn't use the word fascism for stuff like this, but okay, let's go with that. That you know that that somehow you can attain perfection. The world is this dangerous, terrible place, but you can become this sovereign self, um, which is just—it's rubbish, of course. Um, but the impulse to do that is—is is for me, it's a very capitalist impulse. But it's, you know, where we all have to be, you know, contributing members of society. Um, but it just seems to have been absorbed by by so much of society now that that is the only way to be. And if you're not doing it, you're doing it wrong, and and so on. Mm. Um, mm. And it's slightly off topic, but but why not? Um, I'm writing a bit about Simone Weil at the moment, um, and she for me is such an exemplar of of this mistake. So many people who write about Simone Weil take her idea of attention, radical attention, and take that to be you know just you know, really concentrating on what you're doing and, and enjoying it. Whereas for Simone Weil, it was a harsh um, Christian Catholic concept that you you were so attentive to the world around you that you destroyed the self. You took mm. self to pieces. Now, whether that's mm. right or wrong is, is one thing or another. But the number of times I see Simone Weil quotes taken out of context that, you know, paying attention to the leaf, the tree, the blah, 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 is somehow, you know, a, a way of becoming selfless, <laughs> of, of attaining selfhood. That's not what she's saying. Stop saying that. That's what she's saying. And um, to me, you know, putting four Buddhas up in your house and, and you know, putting on, some, burning some incense and calling that Buddhism is exactly that, isn't it? You know, I, I, I slowed down. I, you know, after, after, you know, taking the kids to school and doing all of this, I then sat and had some time to myself. Great. Mm. But don't call it Buddhism. <laughs> don't call it mindfulness. <laughs> yeah. In fact, sorry, my, my final rant. I actually saw some mindfulness apps the other day, and I just thought that was the end of civilization. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't go that far, but I appreciate your negative take on all of that. It's something uh, the podcast shares with you. That's <laughs> too many of our Good listeners. Out, yeah, other types of mindfulness. And check out your latest. Your, your other. Exactly. Yeah, it's obscene as well because, of course, there's an uh, you know a subscription price, and the more you pay, the more you get. And yet, you know, this this is a these are religious practices for which money was not asked and you know turning it into a way to get rich and make a name for yourself is is pretty sad but there's been a lot of that i'm afraid and uh many of our listeners will be aware of it but but peter we're we're running into a problem it's called it's called the limits uh, of time oh that old thing bloody hell right yeah and (laughs) i've got i've i've got a whole bunch of other things i'd be happy to talk with you about well what would you uh what would you say to making this part one of a of a conversation we we get together in another moment and carry on with the rest i would absolutely love that if if your listeners are into it if you only get four listeners for this one then we'll you know but uh you know if it's (laughs) that's highly unlikely i'm afraid so it looks like you're gonna have to come back on yeah, that would be that would be fantastic because um yeah as I say there's a lot more to say about Derrida I think and, and you know he does raise a lot of questions you know as as we've established I can bang on about herself for hours and hours as well if you want um but you know I think I think he does seem to me a, a thinker who in terms of the the things we've been talking about is is very engaged and I think in terms of the culture now and and what the sort of things we've touched on um he's there or thereabouts and and where he's not is also interesting to look at. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, look, here's some of the, the menu items that I might like to serve at the great feast I mentioned before. Um, 
One of them is looking at Heidegger and the idea of being in space. That's a good one. Uh, The idea that you touched on, but we didn't make explicit within the questions, which is this idea of avenir or to come. Uh, Also nostalgia for primitivism and Rousseau. I love uh, criticizing Rousseau. So anybody that might be able to take part in that, I'm I'm all on board. (laughs) Absolutely. I have to say, I, I kind of, have an affection for his song, and I just want to go over and give him a bit of a big hug and say it's going to be okay. It's all right. <laughs> yeah, I think he needs a bit more than that, but that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I also want to talk about glass and supplementarity, which I actually think for listeners uh, is kind of related to the idea of interdependence and the chain of being, yeah. otherwise known as samsara. Right. I do want to talk with you about Francois Leroel. I also want to talk about... Yeah, <laughs> we'll mean, get to that. i to reading Leroel before we do it. Uh, well, and I might we'll... even send you a thing or two that would make Leroel more accessible. But <gasps> hey, who, right. there you go. All right. Uh, <laughs> the beast and the sovereign and the human and non-human. Fantastic. How does all that sound as a follow-up conversation? That all sounds absolutely fantastic. So it sounds like that'll be part two of three, by given given all of that. <laughs> well, we'll see. Maybe, maybe we can have a couple of hours for the second yes, conversation. Uh, yeah, brilliant. Excellent. All right. Okay, so uh, you've been listening to the Imperfect Buddha podcast, and you now know that was the first part of a conversation with the rather fine Peter Salmon. And in the meantime, you know what you can do, dear listeners. You know what you can do. Go out and buy yourself a copy of an event, perhaps a biography of Jacques Derrida by Mr. Peter Salmon, and it's available on Verso Books. And I do recommend it to the the layperson. There'll be a couple of challenging thoughts in there and a bit of further reading to do to contextualize Derrida's life, but it's well worth it and it's a great read. Catch you next time. That's all for today.